means that class cements racial oppression, class cements gender oppression, and it always has. Right. And so when we uh, talk about the centrality of class, some people who may not, uh, you know, who, who may think class is central, but may not necessarily know exactly how, will then say, okay, because class is central, things like race and gender are not as important. Well, it's not that they're not as important. It's just that if we want to fight for them, if uh, fighting against racism is like our like fundamental drive in our lives or fighting against sexism is our fundamental drive or fighting against xenophobia, I think the, the message that we need to articulate is that the only way you can do that is by posing the class question. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. We are talking about probably one of the most contentious issues today about that we have talked about on this podcast. Um, we're talking about the violence going on in Palestine um, recently in like Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so today um, we have Sean Emery, who's an activist in Philly. And I'll just let you kind of give a, a short bio, whatever you think the people should know about you. Yeah, my name is Sean Emery. Um, I am a member of the Philadelphia Socialist Alternative. Um, and I am also a member of this new organization um, that I'm building called the Philadelphia Free Palestine Coalition. Uh, it's a coalition of many different organizations, um, uh, among them uh, Socialist Alternative, Young Democratic Socialists of America, um, Philly Earth Alliance, Defund, Temple University Police Department, uh, Sunrise Movement, um, the Black and Brown Coalition, and, and a number of other independent organizers. We came together like around last summer um, uh, through mass actions in opposition to the uh, Israeli attempt to annex the West Bank. Um, that was in July 2020. Um, since then, we've really trying to we're trying to sort of cement ourselves as um, like a, a sustained space for the propagation of like information and action uh, for the liberation uh, of occupied Palestine. We want to use our platform here in in, in uh, you know the most powerful country in, in, in the world um, to place pressure on, you know, our centers of, of power. We believe, you know, that, that those are the American capitalist class um, because they hold uh, some of the most weight um, uh, in this particular, uh, you know, some people would call it conflict, but I would say this particular uh, uh, like occupation, um, this particular um, uh, area of uh, imperial domination. Right. Um, and uh, we're, we're trying to build a space to like just build a popular understanding of these issues, um, but uh, make a strong effort to really connect that to the issues that we're fighting for here in Philadelphia. So we are an avowedly socialist organization, and we believe that fundamentally the, 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 the cause for the liberation of Palestine um, is uh, fully linked uh, to the cause against capitalism. And we experience the ravages of capitalism uh, every day. Day of our lives in every part of this city, in every part of this country, in every part of the world. So we want to connect the struggles that we are uh, uh, facing and fighting here in Philadelphia to the struggle in Palestine. Because fundamentally, we see when we fight for ourselves, we're fighting for the Palestinian people. When the Palestinian people fight for themselves, they're fighting for us. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to build. Do you have, um, like, how did you get into this? Do you have, like, a personal, like, background or a personal connection to the issue? Or, like, yeah, how, how is that yeah. something you came to start doing? Um, well, I mean, I come from a very, uh, like Jewish neighborhood, um, mm -hmm. a lot of young Jews, um, and my peers, my friends, um, and when I was growing up, you know, I remember, uh, hearing actually a lot about Israel, even like in just elementary school, like I can specifically remember like a library class where our librarian was telling us it's amazing land of Israel, a beautiful country attacked by terrorists or something, but it's so great. Uh, and you know, my family and friends go there on vacation. I heard that all the time from people. Um, and, uh, you know, I really believed all that. Um, it wasn't something I felt strongly about, but I just felt, oh, Israel is like a cool country in this dangerous part of the world. Um, but uh, my family, my, my mother is from Iran originally. And then uh, I, I started taking um, some classes in like middle school and, and high school and just learn about, you know, American history, world history, just getting a more open mind. And then I started asking these questions like, oh, what do you think about Israel? Uh, what do you think about, you know, uh, the Middle East to my Middle Eastern family? Um, and they gave me very different uh, perspectives than what I was used to uh, from my friends. And um, 
you know, so I, I did research. Uh, I, I, I took a class freshman year of high school called African Asian Studies. Um, and that really gave me the broad perspective on the world and realized like, oh, Palestinians are like a people. They're not like terrorists. And also this state of Israel, uh, it, it continues to want to expand and, 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 and make more war and, and, and more suffering in the region as a proxy force for the United States. And that, of course, is uh, uh, very directly uh, impacting Iran, um, which is where my family's from. And so, you know, we see what Israel has been doing to Iran for the last couple of years, um, you know, uh, lobbying the United States to impose these sanctions. Of course, it, that doesn't happen because of Israel. Israel's an important factor, but um, that's also due to the American capitalist class and what they're thinking about Iran um, and what they think, how they want to attack Iran and, and, and uh, you know, uh, choke an entire people. Um, and of course, Israel's in lockstep with them because the Israeli ruling class, the Israeli ruling capitalist class, um, has the same interests as the American uh, ruling capitalist class. Um, so yeah, I started asking those questions by high school and then, uh, I found Noam Chomsky. I was a linguistics nerd. My mom said, Oh, Noam Chomsky is coming to, you know, uh, you know, uh, your sister's college. Uh, you know, he's a linguist. You should look him up. And I didn't know anything. I mean, I, I followed politics. Um, but I, I was really a linguistics nerd. But then I looked up Chomsky and I didn't really pay attention to his linguistics, but only paid attention to, to his politics. And, you know, when he speaks, uh, he, he, he's not very ideological. He just shows the facts. And then when you just hear the facts about the history of this, um, of this uh, campaign against the Palestinian people, the history of uh, the, the uh, uh, you know, occupation of the Middle East by European powers and uh, the, the neo-colonial reality of these countries and um, how they're used as a, a ground for war making and resource extraction and, and propping up of um, international capitalism and how that is done all at the expense of the people of the region. You know, you can't really go back. You know, you, you really see that, you know, Israel's a proxy force for United States led capitalism. See, this is this is like one of those issues where, like, I feel like especially if you go to college in these kind of like elite circles. It's one of those areas where it, it almost makes you kind of like question your understanding of reality because I feel like this is one area where you can talk to a group of people yeah. who are seemingly like pretty much aligned yeah. with your politics in like every other respect. <laughs> right. And then you're like, wait a second, like we're we're looking at the same yeah. videos of like who's getting bombed. We're looking at the police in this mosque. Like how... How are we not right. like seeing the same thing? Right. I mean, that, that's something that, that was so, um, I mean, I experienced that very firsthand in my neighborhood. So I mentioned I come from a very, very Jewish neighborhood. I also come from a very, very, very democratic neighborhood, democratic party uh, affiliated neighborhood. I mean, you cannot be a Republican in my area. Um, uh, it, it is a very up, like, upper class area. I wouldn't even say upper middle class area. It's, it's a very high income, old money area, but it's all Democrats, basically. Um, all very highly educated people. Um, I remember around like 2015, 2016, when Black Lives Matter became a thing. Uh, it, it obviously wasn't what it became after 2020, but, you know, I remember a lot of, uh, my, like, uh, my friends, you know, like family having Black Lives Matter signs and, you know, everyone loves Obama in my name. Everyone loves Obama. But the moment you talk about Israel, the moment you talk about Gaza, a, a lot of these, um, you know, families who, Black Lives Matter all day will say Israel needs to deal with those terrorists in that in that hellhole country being ruled by a bunch of barbarians like that. That's how, uh, you know, I, I knew a lot of people thought like this. Right. Um, and it's 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 very strange, you know. Right. It's one of those things where I feel like I I tend to really um, especially around, for example, like the media and having people like I know a lot of people and like people in my family who are just very skeptical of the media, like, oh, my God, you can't trust what they're, you know, telling you. And then like, you know, they're like anti-vaxxers and you're like, wait a second. No, 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 no. Like, <laughs> like, actually, <laughs> there are some things that you should trust the media on, but this right. does not necessarily right. feel like one of those things. Well, I mean, that comes out of. um you know, one of my favorite books is Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky. I mentioned I'm a big Chomsky fan. And um, I mean, that's all the product of uh, what they call the propaganda model. Um, you know, uh, to get these media jobs, you need to come out of certain sectors. You need to have some sort of level of self-censorship. Um, oftentimes, those, th those who have certain perspectives 
about like issues around the world aren't even just let in because they violate the terms of like what it is to to be a journalist. Um, just today, I saw uh, someone from the Associated Press um, was fired uh, because in college she was a member of Students for Justice in Palestine, and this is so ironic because. Uh, just, um, I want to say four days ago, mm-hmm. um, Israel bombed one of the largest uh, towers in Gaza that contained the offices of uh, Al Jazeera News and the Associated Press. So days after Israel bombs the Associated Press, they're firing one of their reporters because she was, quote unquote, uh, biased by being in uh, Students for Justice in Palestine uh, in high school, you know, it, it, what it means to be unbiased is totally determined by the ruling system. Um, and if you're ruling, if your ruling system is a capitalist system, uh, those sorts of biases, those sorts of uh, frames of opinion of what you can and can't question are going to be uh, reflected um, in the structure of the media. Um, now, of course, we all, I think capitalism is a fundamentally anti-human system. The system's not good for us. When we're fed this, these, these sort of, uh, I don't want to say it's totally misinformation. I would say it's an inadequate share of information. Um, it's like uh, sort of unintentionally, selectively uh, distributed information. Um, you know, it doesn't tell us the whole story. Uh, it, 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 it's not... It's not good for us. We start to not trust it because we, we know our, our daily lived reality is not the reality that the media describes to us. Um, because like I said, the system is, is, is not uh, good for us as human beings. And so the media is propping up the system that's just, uh, or echoing the, 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 the views, um, uh, that the system allows, which is again, fundamentally anti-human. Um, so we develop this sort of distrust of, of the media. Um, like, okay, well, I don't trust, uh, that vaccines are, uh, safe because, um, my experience in life is, uh, so different than what the media says. And it can go the same way. Well, I don't trust that some people are saying that, um, uh, Palestinians are, uh, human beings because, um, uh, you know, my family experienced this trauma and, I can't trust the media in this or that sphere. So why should I trust them on this or that thing? There's this, this is anti-Semitic. This is not, you know, it's that same sort of tr- like trust and lack of trust that's built. Like it's always there. They're always uh, like um, interacting the, uh, the truth and the, the partial. Yeah. Truth. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that makes sense. I, this, the way I feel about when, like in the way the, of framing, how capitalism has kind of like come to be so anti-human. I feel like at the beginning, it was like the progressive thing to do. And like, you know, compared to having, right, like a a system of divine, like the divine right of kings. And like, you know, there are some people, there's, there was no notion of like any kind of upward mobility period. Like it was like the social justice thing to do, right? just to propose the system of capitalism, right? But now we've like gone through that period of history and we're clearly, I think, generationally on the brink of saying, okay, we are past this point, right? Like we we have reaped maybe some benefits of like people being able to like, you know, get out of poverty because of the system, but we're also seeing very starkly so many of these perverse incentives causing, yeah, just anti-human behavior, right? Like the fact that like Bitcoin is through the roof and it's destroying the planet and like, you know, blah, 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 blah. There's like a million examples, right? Right. But what is your, what is your take on how it relates specifically to the conflict in Palestine? Yeah, no, well, I mean, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people like to talk about how this is a settler colonial uh, conflict and that this is based on like white supremacy and Zionism. And that's all totally true. I mean, that I, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Um, I just think that sometimes that does kind of miss the whole picture. I always loved the quote by uh, the great uh, civil rights activist and revolutionary Kwame Ture, also known as Stokely Carmichael, where he said, you know, if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. But if a white man has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. And fundamentally, you have to ask, like, what's the system that, you know, creates that, uh, that power? You know, a white person can think white people are great, but if they don't have the power to do anything about it, it doesn't, doesn't mean anything, right? Um, the, the system that creates that ideology 
is capitalism. So if you look at the case of the United States, you know, why did these settlers come here? I mean, it's a complicated story, but, you know, the, 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 there's um, two dominant reasons. You know, one was you had people who questioned the role of the church and questioned the divine right of the king. So the king, uh, in order to prevent a class conflict between them and, and uh, uh, you know, the, the ruling aristocratic and royalist class, you send them over to America. Um, or if you're an aristocrat, if you're a merchant, uh, if you're someone who wants to accumulate wealth, you go, some, you go to America, you go to, you know, a colony and make money off of uh, the land and the resources there. That's fundamentally because of the, the drive to seek profit. Now, how do you justify that? How do you justify the, um, the slave system that you need to maintain to, to keep that profits? You know, you tell the white workers and you tell uh, the black workers that they're different, that there's something fundamentally different about them, that white workers are better, that black workers are worse. And then that creates this ideology where white workers and black workers can't unite to actually, uh, uh, you know, rectify their interests as those who work and, and, and don't get paid for the wealth that they create. It's very similar in the case of Israel. Um, you, you know, uh, Jews are historically a very marginalized community in Europe. Um, and they were oftentimes used as a scapegoat for society's problems. No, the problem isn't the, the king. The problem isn't the government. The problem isn't the ruling class. It's not capitalism. It's the Jews. And so that creates this, you know, systemic discrimination against the Jewish people. The, the way they were discriminated against differed from country to country. Um, and I would say this wasn't really the case in, uh, you know, North Africa or Middle East, uh, or, you know, uh, West Asia. Um, the, the story of, of the Jews there is much more complicated. Um, but, uh, at least in Europe where Zionism originated, um, uh, it, it was a very marginal uh, movement, uh, for, for many, many years. And it was actually, um, uh, mostly uh, supported by just a few uh, elites within the Jewish community, which was uh, at least, especially in Eastern Europe, uh, not a, you know, a very working class and poor community. And so for that reason, for many decades, uh, Zionists were laughed at among the Jews. Uh, the most popular currents among Jews were socialist uh, currents, uh, various different kinds. And there were, you know, many of the Bolsheviks in Russia were Jewish. Uh, many, uh, I know, uh, it was a point of pride for many Jews that like, oh, we actually, we were the ones who really like played an important role in this revolution. We were able to help liberate our people by engaging in this uh, uh, revolution of the working class. There are also the Bundists in, uh, in Poland who believe that you need to have a sort of Jewish autonomous society, but, uh, you know, as a part of a working class movement uh, meant to build socialism. And like I said, Zionists were marginal within that. Um, however, Zionists were able to um, uh, uh, create alliances uh, with uh, elites in, in, in parts of Europe. And, um, uh, you know, for various reasons, um, they were able to get um, the British Empire to, um, you know, actually, before I go there, Zionists were thinking of many different uh, countries to go to. Um, they were first thought of Uganda, Argentina, and they explicitly modeled it off of uh, the, uh, the colonies, um, uh, the British colonies. They wanted a colonial state uh, based on ethnicity, the rule of one ethnicity, uh, the Jewish people. Um, and they weren't focused on Palestine because most Zionists weren't religious at all. That was not their interest. What The reason why they chose Palestine, there's two reasons. One, they thought it was, you know, the, the big slogan, uh, a land without a people for a people without a land. They thought no one was there. And the second reason was... Um, uh, they knew the Orthodox held um, Jerusalem to be like an important city and that like they, they, they held uh, the, 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 the history of the kingdom of Israel in their hearts. And they thought, they thought okay, well, we can win over um, uh, parts of the Orthodox Jewish community who are very distrustful of us by making this movement in Palestine. So they carried, uh, you know, uh, uh, alliances with the Europeans who thought, okay, well, you know, uh, Jewish people are discriminated against here. We can just solve that problem and just, you know, they leave, right? <laughs> uh, it's actually very racist in a lot of ways, very anti-Semitic. Um, however, you know, there's a lot of good reasons why Jews had to leave. I mean, uh, Europe was a, a very uh, an anti-Semitic place and they wanted um, a land to go to where they didn't have to deal with that. And there were a number of uh, original Zionists who, who did believe in a sort of, um, uh, you know, go to Palestine to create a sort of cultural hub of the Jewish people, a national home, but that doesn't have to translate to an ethnic state. That doesn't have to translate to 
one with the Jewish majority that declares itself a nation state like other states. And back then, nation states were very new. Um, and so um, the European elites could solve a problem by, uh, you know, as, as they saw, they could solve the Jewish question. Um, uh, and also many Jews were socialists. You know, they could just send the socialists down to Palestine. Um, and, uh, you know, then the Zionist colonists, uh, at least the ones that won out, because there were other Zionists, like I mentioned, that, that didn't believe in this ethnic supremacy, uh, that didn't believe in conquering territory, um, and that didn't believe in, you know, uh, uh, you know basically global imperialism. Um, they were not the ones who went out. They were um, dominant for a part, but uh, maybe not dominant, but they were not marginal for a period and then they became marginal. And those who dominated were those who carried close alliances with the British imperialist class. So like I said, as I was going to before I went to Uganda and Argentina, uh, they got the British um, Empire to say that the mandate of Palestine, when we take it over after World War One, this will be sort of earmarked, earmarked to be a, quote, national home for the Jewish people. And the British basically thought um, that, you know, they'll eventually have to get rid of, you know, let the mandate be independent. That was the that's what mandate meant. You could take control of the territory and then eventually uh, create some sort of government that's favorable to your interests. And then you let it be, quote, independent. Um, that was the mandate of Palestine. And they earmarked it to the Zionists. And they did this so that they could create an alliance with, you know, a group of people that would sustain their interests and their interests would be capitalist imperialist interests. And that's what happened. Um, when the state of Israel was declared, uh, they basically served uh, the interests of British imperialism, you know, going to war with Egypt in the Suez crisis um, uh, in the 50s um, up until, you know, the decline of the British Empire, which was in post-World World War II. And then in the Cold War, they basically served as a proxy for American empire. And then since then, it's been that way, you know, up to now. Um, and so fundamentally, the, the dispossession of the Palestinian people, the theft of their land, uh, the killing of their family, um, the theft of their homes, like literally houses, um, is uh, sustained, uh, justified, uh, and, and subsidized by the global capitalist imperial system. Um, so when Palestinians are fighting for their rights, uh, fighting against discrimination, fighting for their uh, you know, human dignity, they're fighting all the same interests that won't let us have Medicare for all, um, that uh, have built, you know, uh, the largest like uh, uh, prison industrial complex in the developed world, um, uh, who have um, uh, created the climate crisis, the global climate crisis, not just the U.S. Um, that's all the same interests that they're fighting as Palestinians. And so when we're out here in, in the U.S. and Philly fighting for better funding of public schools, fighting for green jobs, fighting for Medicare for all. We're fighting the capitalist imperialist interests of the world that 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 are you know uh, funding the dispossession of the Palestinian people and the massacre of the people in Gaza. Yeah, well, see, here's why I feel like the topic itself is such a hot button issue is that it feels like as soon as you take issue with and like kind of associate Zionists and Jews with the capitalist class, like immediately someone can be like, oh well, that's anti-Semitic, right? That is, you know, like such a stereotype, blah, blah, blah. Right. right. But then it makes it like an impossible issue to talk about. Right. 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 If someone can just be like, oh, well, as soon as you make that association, you know, you, you know, you're done. Yeah. Right. It, it's so funny that criticism or that that. And, and I know you aren't saying this to me, but you're, you're, you're echoing this belief. Um, uh, it, it's such a it's so funny because. You know, if you told that to, you know, the generations of Jews in Europe who are dominant, like most of them socialists, avowed Marxists, communists, they would kind of laugh at you like, what are you talking about? I'm a socialist. I'm anti-capitalist be because I'm Jewish, because I'm discriminated against, you know, um, because Jews were used as the scapegoat for capitalism from, you know, day one. Uh, it was so easy to pinpoint them as the problem. And the problem was never the Jews. It was always the capitalist class. Jew and non-Jew, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a shame. And, and, and I understand where that criticism comes from because I do have um, – I have, I, I have uh, friends who you know, voted for Trump or conservative, um, and uh, they really do believe in that Jewish conspiracy. Um, and, and, and they really do believe that the capitalist system is controlled by Jews. Uh, but you see two perspectives about it. They say, okay, well, the capitalist system is controlled by Jews, and I admire Jews because I like the capitalist system. And the other one is – 
okay, well, the reason why capitalism is so bad is because of the Jews. And I mean, both of them are just absolutely absurd. And both of them are incredibly racist. And I think, you know, uh, the Palestinian cause is such a pure cause um, and, and such a noble cause that, you know, it should have nothing to do with anti-Semitism. And I think anyone that stands with Palestine uh, should be, um, you know, completely steadfast against anti-Semitism because it's actually anti-Semitism is what created a lot of the conditions um, for the Zionist colonization, ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the part that I think is, at least for me, difficult to parse is how they went from being such this like global underdog to then having like one of the most powerful militaries in the world. Right. And that, I think, is what feeds a lot of that Jewish conspiracy stuff that's going on. Right. And I don't I, and I will admit to not understanding how that happened either. Right. Because like suddenly right. the U.S. <laughs> is just like sending billions of dollars. Right. To fund their military. And the question is, why? Right. Well, so there's, there's a very interesting quote by our uh, wonderful president, Joe Biden. Um, I'm going to be paraphrasing, pa- paraphrasing, excuse me. Um, he said something like, uh, you know, I'm a proud Zionist. I'm a proud supporter of Israel. The relationship between the U.S. and Israel is unbreakable. If Israel didn't exist, the United States would go out there and create one. Mm-hmm. All right. So why does he say that? Well, Israel has always served the interests of the global capitalist class. It's always served the interests of the British when they wanted to keep their interests uh, alive while the Arab world was revolting against them with these secular Arab nationalist regimes in Egypt. Uh, it was Israel who facilitated the British um, when trying to uh, attack Egypt for nationalizing the Suez Canal. You know, um, uh, it, it was um, Israel who, who has been, you know, uh, attacking Iran through a hybrid war in the past couple of years as the U.S. has decided Iran is our, our, our main enemy. Um, uh, it is Israel that is, um, you know, protecting the interests of these uh, dictatorships in the Gulf um, who, um, uh, you know, control a lot of the world's oil supply. Of course, oil is becoming less and less important, and that's actually a big crisis for both the regimes in the Gulf and for Israel. And I think that's why there's a lot of reason for hope um, in Palestine, because Israel is becoming less and less and less important to the United States empire. But up until now, it's been very important in uh, maintaining the United States interest in the region. Um, and that's not uh, because of, I mean, I think you could argue that Israel has disproportionate interests um, in America. I don't think that's an anti-Semitic thing to say. I think it's just objective if you look at, you know, the amount of lobbying groups for Israel. And of course, actually now, it's less and less Jewish lobbying groups and more and more Christian evangelical lobbying groups. But still, nonetheless, they, they, they have a disproportionate influence in U.S. lobbying. Um, but even that's not totally a coincidence. I mean, um, this, this uh, country serves the interests of uh, the American capitalist class. So that, and before, again, the British capitalist class. So that's why up until, you know, up, you know basically since its founding up to now. Um, it's uh, gotten the aid of all these uh, of all these actors, and and that's not to say the original Zionists were very smart, extremely smart guys like David Ben Gurion. I mean, they're horrible, really despicable people. I mean, um, they were the ones who uh, you know uh, very um, openly and uh, you know if you read their transcripts, of their discussions uh, as as the Zionist militias before the founding of before the founding of Israel and and after they were pretty clear that they need, they wanted a Jewish majority and to do that, they needed ethnic cleansing. I mean, these are horrible people, but they're very, very smart. Um, they were able to, um, play a very good diplomatic game. Um, and, uh, you know, play a very, uh, impressive military game, but that's, you know, they wouldn't, none of that would be possible. Like, even if they are particularly smart at this or that, being particularly smart wouldn't mean much if you didn't have, the backing of the imperialist powers of, of, of Britain and then now the United States. And also back then it was the Soviet Union too. Um, uh, because the Soviet Union didn't really know much about Palestine. Back then people thought Palestine didn't really exist. They didn't think Palestinian people existed. Um, and, uh, you know, people were very rightfully horrified by the, by the, by the Holocaust and especially the Soviet people, um, you know, who underwent extremely vicious occupation by the Nazis. So, you know, for many reasons, the world was very ignorant about, uh, you know, the crimes that Israel had to commit to establish itself. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it's it, it's not just the 
particular uh, expertise and intellect of the the Zionist uh, founders of Israel. That's true. I admit that they're very smart, but they wouldn't be able to. You can't just be smart and win a whole country and do an ethnic cleansing. You you need you need stuff behind you. you know? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Is it also feels like a little bit of a like a chicken and egg problem is like on the one hand, okay, they're upholding these uh, U.S. geopolitical interests in the region. But in order to do that, they need money to begin with. Right. right? So like as they're kind of like building up their power, mm-hmm. like it feels like almost a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. But like as they're kind of like colonizing, a lot of the places they're colonizing are literally the places that have the most resources in the region. Like as you're talking about like a lot of this, like right. well, there's a lot of oil, there's right. Right. Well, so Israel itself, the land of Palestine doesn't have any like particular like, uh, you know, vast resource wealth, but it's just that they have this piece of land that they can like launch operations from, that they can ex- exert diplomatic pressure from. And they can exert that diplomatic pressure on the countries that do have these massive oil resources and mm-hmm. you know, natural gas and things like that. Um, yeah. Well, I'm curious as to when you say that, like, oh, yeah, a lot of these people who are the original Zionists were socialists, like were people yeah. who like because of the historical oppression of Jewish people were really like progressive people. Like, what do you see as being the transition from those people to like people who are now literally kicking people out of their homes right forcibly right? right so like that feels like there's a big disconnect there or are you just saying that like do you feel like those are two separate groups of people it's a very complicated story um i i yeah. don't really have the whole history of it yeah but there was always i mean the zionist movement was always divided and fundamentally at its in its founding it was founded as a like openly uh colonialist movement theodore herzl the the, the founding father of zionism um mm-hmm. was um uh, open in, in his desire for a, uh, a colony, uh, you know, the idea of building an ethnically based nation state, that was always within the frame of Zionism. It wasn't until the sort of growth of socialist ideas that socialist ideas and Zionist ideas became mixed. And so I think you saw a spectrum. You saw a number of Zionists, like those like Albert Einstein um, or um, uh, Hannah Arendt um, or even Noam Chomsky. I mean, Noam Chomsky to this day says like, I mean, I still consider myself a Zionist, but what Zionist to me means what people call anti, anti-Zionist, you know? Um, uh, mm-hmm. He was a very active Zionist in his youth, but to him that just meant, okay, let's build socialism and uh, let's, um, as Jews, move to a land uh, where we're free of anti-Semitism. And when we move there, we work with the native population, the working class people there, we learn Arabic, we learn their culture, and let's like interact together in a secular socialist state and build the socialist project internationally from there. That was what some people consider them themselves Zionists thought back then. That current has uh, no existence today. I mean, and they were, and to some extent, they existed, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, but they were always marginal and they were always, uh, uh, they always had ina- inadequate uh, critiques of the actual ruling Zionists, which were the ones who wanted to ally uh, with global imperialist and capitalist interests. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think that's a, a kind of, you know, short summary of it. But then there's also the the people called, you know, the name of the movement is, quote, revisionist Zionism. Zionism, uh, I think that's what it's called, founded by Zev uh, Jabotinsky. Um and he's the basically the thought leader, the founding father of uh, what would become the Likud party, which is the current ruling uh, party in Israel. Um, and he was very, very open. I mean, if you read his writings, I mean, I just for the first time read one of his uh, writings like last night even. Um, he was very clear, like our agenda is to get rid of the Arabs. It's no use trying to pretend like we're going to be friends. Like, let's not baby the Arabs. Uh, we're trying to take their land and uh, push them out. Um and mm-hmm. uh, that was considered right wing uh, in, in uh, back then. But he said these mo- these what, what he called quote moderate Zionists like they can't fool themselves like they're doing the same thing. And ultimately, he was actually right. Uh, some of the most uh, egregious violations of the Palestinian people's human rights and dignity and and, and, and sovereignty and land um, uh, were done by the quote unquote Israeli left, um, the Labor Party and their coalitions. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know where to go from there, but 
Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it does feel like one of those things that just feels so unique, at least in this era of history, because like I could imagine alternate worlds where like a super oppressed people like then tried to go and like form their own state. Like in the 60s, there was the whole like back to Africa movement right. among like people in, you know, people, African-Americans in the U.S. Mm -hmm. But like I, and I don't actually really know why that didn't happen. I assume it was just like a resource problem. And a lot of those people were just were not like were so historically disenfranchised that they couldn't make it happen. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it ended up being a moral thing of like, oh, no, we shouldn't do this because this would also be colonialism if right. we like just go and took some place in Africa. Right? right. But like in that respect, it seems like a pretty unique, uh, you know, part of modern day history. Right. Because I feel like it feel, almost feels like, you know, these types of conflicts that are like this historically fraught are mostly resolved like we don't see a ton of interstate conflict anymore you know in the modern day like we know that that's been going trending downwards you know throughout you know modern day history right what, 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 and so that's yeah, why i feel ahead. like it feels so unsolvable to people right? right is that they're like oh well this is just one of those like you know classic things where right. like you know uh i was like watching a, a trevor noah thing on the you know israel palestine conflict and he, and like the the top comment was like oh you know telling them to just you know, the the un telling them to just like stop killing each other is like telling a depressed person to just like stop being sad it's like an unresolvable thing and it's like totally useless advice right right so like what do you see as being like do you do you have a desired outcome like i i, I definitely agree with the sentiment of like okay like this fucking sucks and right. like we need these people to stop getting massacred right yeah I, I, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think it's difficult to answer. There, there's sort of two, there's, there's, there's two ways I could take this. Um, so the one thing is, okay, look at what's on the ground, you know, look at how resistance is being done currently in Palestine. Um, uh, we're seeing, um, a number of different ways Palestinians are fighting for their freedom. Um, so, in uh, Sheikh Jarrah, uh, which is this neighborhood in East Jerusalem where uh, a family is, uh, uh, there's basically an attempted eviction, what's called eviction, it's an ethnic cleansing attempt. Um, a family who's already had part of their home taken away from them. They have a, an, an like an annex of their home that they built themselves years ago. They have just like, you know, a Jewish guy from the US living there named like Jacob Fauci. Like, <laughs> just moving to the fucking house. So there's that. They're having peaceful demonstrations there. Um, uh, and it, part of, you know, their uh, resistance is, you know, holding up Palestinian flags and Palestinian flag colored balloons. And for that, they get met with uh, tear gas and, and, and uh, skunk water, which is like smelly water. Um, there's also uh, uh, Arabs and um, Palestinian Arabs in uh, what's recognized as Israeli territory, um, also called by the Palestinians uh, Palestine 48. That was the original borders of Palestine in 1948. Um, uh, they're having riots. They're having mass demonstrations in the city, kind of taking over city centers. Um, there's been uh, violence by Jewish vigilantes against Palestinian Arabs and then some uh, uh, attacks in response to those uh, vicious lynchings, open lynchings um, of uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, and then you have this general strike that I mentioned uh, uh, earlier um, uh, that stretched from the West Bank, all the West Bank in East Jerusalem, into uh, Palestine 48, internationally recognized Israel, of all the Palestinian Arabs there. Um, that's one way people are resisting. Um, and then in Gaza, of course, you have what people call the Hamas rockets. Um, I say people call them that because they have probably by now shot between like three and 4,000 of these quote unquote rockets. And of these three and 4,000, I think about 13 Israelis have been killed. Um, you know, and that's not a good thing. Um, however, if you're shooting three to 4,000 rockets and only 13 people are being killed, are those really rockets? You know, these, these are projectiles. These are bottle rockets. I mean, these are enhanced fireworks. They can cause damage, but they are not like extremely lethal weapons by any means. I mean, this is, this is a, this is a territory, um, uh, where, 90% of the people don't have, well, 90% of the water source, 90% of the water is undrinkable. It's not safe for drinking. Uh, more than half the population are children. 40% of the population are unemployed. Probably now, uh, more than that uh, with this current bombing campaign. Um, uh, they were not vaccinated under, uh, by Israel. Um, they're still under COVID. Um, 
three quarters of the people there are refugees or descendants of refugees. Um, the, the place is in absolute ruins. Nothing can come into that area, um, with, in or out of that area without the approval of Israel or Egypt. So they can get very little, uh, funds to, to, to actually rebuild their city after it's destroyed by Israel every couple of years. Um, these are people living in an open air prison, in a concentration camp, not a death camp. I won't compare it to the Nazi Holocaust, but it is a concentration camp. It is a camp it is in the, one of the most densely populated areas of the world. Um, and these people are suffering. They're drinking unsafe water. Uh, they are, you know, living in uh, unsafe infrastructure. Um, they don't have access to quality health care. Uh, most of them are children. And these people are traumatized and they have nothing left but to throw these, you know, projectiles. Um, uh, and I don't say that to endorse that strategy, um, but to just understand where it comes from. I mean, they have nothing left, these people. Um, and uh, Right, it's clearly a move of people who just don't have other options. It's uh, it, not like you can compare them in any way. It's totally it, apples to oranges. You have like right. fully fledged, you know, modern day, extremely advanced military compared right. to people just like making bottle rockets or whatever, right? right? Like, right. It's not comparable. Absolutely. And, 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 and the other thing is, you know, part of their strategy is, you know, they know the way Israelis live. You know, Israel is a very stratified society. There's a very big class divide between them. I'm not saying Israel's a paradise. I think it's actually, um, uh, it, we lose some of the tools we have to, uh, end, um, this, uh, uh, you know, um, occupation by just saying all Israelis live in paradise. It's actually not true. I think, and I think the Israeli working class can play a really important role in liberating Palestine, but they first need to realize that their interests are not with the Zionist, racist, colonialist rulers of the Israel that have run that country since its founding. They need to realize that their interests are with the Palestinian working class. But I'll, I'm going to get to that. Because um, you asked about how I see a solution to this. I, right. I want to just kind of frame it because it is very difficult, you know. Um, right. Absolutely. Uh, uh, um, so, yeah, you, you have people in Gaza who they have nothing left. They And they know the way Israelis live, even if it's not paradise, like I said. People in Tel Aviv can go to the club. They can go to the bar. You know, maybe if they, you know, if some of the working class, like, can't afford, you know, their rent or whatever, like, that's a problem. But, you know, these people are like, they got clean water. You know, they got, you know, some housing. Uh, they got clean streets. They got access to education. Um, you know, the, these people are fundamentally, like, living like, you know, normal human beings in a capitalist society. Um, and the Gazans are denied of every aspect of having just any sort of enriching life. I mean, just a couple of days ago, the largest bookstore in Gaza was was bombed. I mean, it, it, you're a terrorist if you read books in Gaza. I mean, they don't want people of Gaza to have any enjoyment in life. Uh, it, it, it's not even, you know, Hassan Kenafani, there's a famous, uh, you know, uh, Palestinian author and revolutionary. He said, you know, uh, us being killed isn't just the problem. And I'm totally paraphrasing here. It's also just that our lives are being st just like stolen from us, even if when we're living it, even when our, our blood is still moving and our breaths are, are still being breathed, um, uh, our dignity is being stolen from, from us in occupation. And in Gaza, all of their dignity is basically being stolen from them as much as Israel can steal, like they, they will. They, they will try and destroy everything Gazans have. So Gazans decide, okay, if you're going to make us live in hell, I mean, the United Nations today, uh, in a statement by Antonio Gutierrez, um, said that uh, life for children in Gaza is, quote, hell on earth. It's hell there. It's hell. Um, they say, OK, it's hell here. Maybe not be great there, but it's not hell there. We're not going to we're going to deny you guys the right to go to the club. We're going to deny you guys the right to go to the beach. You're going to be forced to stay in your bomb shelters, even if we're just throwing these projectiles at us, at you. We have nothing left. To the world, this is our cry for help. That's what these projectiles are. And that's fun, the fundamental strategy that Hamas is taking. Now, why do I, you know, give that whole introduction before I sort of say, like, what I think the answer is? I think fundamentally the answer is it's not about a one or two state solution. The fact is, is that if there's a one or two state solution, there will inevitably be some sort of racial divide between Jews and Palestinians. And so long as that exists, there will never be a solution to this conflict. So I think the only way that you can, uh, um, you know, destroy the scourge of racism in every part of the world, in Israel, but also the United States, you know, every part of the world, 
is by uniting uh, the working class of both national communities of the Israeli working class and the Palestinian working class. Um, now, I have uh, I, I know some people on the ground uh, in Israel who are trying to organize the Israeli working class, and they say that these Hamas projectiles are not productive to that, that they um, uh, uh, sort of radicalize the Israeli working class even more to the right. And to that, I'd say maybe that's true, but I can't really blame the people of Gaza for taking that route just because they have literally nothing left. I think the strategy is look at what the people in the West Bank and uh, uh, and Palestine 48, what's called internationally recognized Israel. Look at what they're doing. They're striking. Israel took a huge cost by that strike. And, and part of the reason why Israel wasn't uh, able to launch a ground invasion into Gaza and why they've had to take the ceasefire so quickly. I think they've just began a ceasefire about, uh, uh, actually about now, uh, 20 minutes ago, theoretically. I don't know if it's being obeyed, but they're supposed to begin a ceasefire 20 minutes ago as we're recording this. Um, uh, um, the, the Israeli state could not possibly do everything it wanted to do to Gaza because it could not control what was going on in its own territories. It couldn't control what was going on in the West Bank. It couldn't control what was going on in its own cities because the Palestinian working class was rising up. And fundamentally, like I said before, the Israeli working class needs to realize that the, Isra- the, 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 the Israeli capitalist class, which has actually been, you know, uh, destroying their, their livelihoods for the past couple decades, is not on their side. That their interests are with the Palestinian working class. And the only way that the Israeli working class can be safe from attacks from Palestinians is by realizing that these attacks are not coming out of nowhere. These attacks are attacks of self-defense. These are attacks of, of assertion of dignity by the Palestinians. And that if they want to live in peace, if they want to live in security, their security is only with the Palestinian working class. And they can only achieve that by ending the bombing campaign of Gaza ending the occupation of the West Bank, dismantling the system of apartheid, both within the the West Bank and Gaza and within internationally recognized Israel, and building a united working class movement of Israeli Jews and Palestinians. Um, That is the only way you can eliminate racism in Israel. Um, And that's the only way, I mean, even in the U.S., the only way we can really fight for black liberation is by fighting fighting against capitalism, because fundamentally uh, the police in the capitalist state um, uh, just defend its interests. And in the U.S., um, it's uh, black Americans that experience the, 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 the greatest amount of police brutality at the hands of the capitalist state. So like how the solution uh, to uh, systemic racism is to end that system of capitalism by uniting the black and white working class and bringing the white working class to the side of the black working class, bringing the white working class against white supremacy, because white supremacy is not good for white people either. People don't talk about that. The same thing needs to happen there. Zionism is not good for Israeli Jews. It's not good for Jewish people in general. You see a rise in global anti-Semitism because you have this state that declares itself the Jewish state, that declares itself the representative of all of the Jewish people, which it absolutely is not. And then it commits these massacres in the name of the Jewish people. That does not secure the safety of Jews within Israel or outside of Israel. So fundamentally, the solution has to be a united working class. And I think the Israeli working class needs to wake up and join their Palestinian brothers, sisters, and siblings. In the West Bank, in uh, Palestine 48, in the Palestinian refugee diaspora, um, in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, and those in Gaza. I mean, the people of Gaza are, again, in prison. They need to likely need to end systemic uh, uh, racism, likely to end mass incarceration in the U.S. Israel has one big prison of two million people. You've got to end the mass incarceration uh, in the occupied territories. So right. That was a long I mean, tangent, but but I, I think I got to, you know, answering your question. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I I'm not as familiar as like the, the actual politics on the ground in, in Israel, but I do feel like in the United States, like a lot. It feels almost mutually exclusive is like people's identities can only be like activated kind of like one at a time. And I feel like the 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 political powers in the U.S. have done a great job of trying to activate race and not activating people's class right, identity. Right. And like in a very kind of Hunger Games-ish kind of way. Totally. Right. And so 
I mean, I feel like we've seen some inklings of that happening in this last, you know, Democratic primary with Bernie Sanders. Yeah. But now that, you know, Joe Biden is president, it doesn't feel like that momentum has kept going in this sense of like, oh, you know, like we are we don't even like. So we had a. this guy who is a, the host of the Sensible Socialist podcast on our show. Oh, yeah. And he was talking about how he, you know, thinks a lot of the root of this is the fact that we don't even have class studies as a category in schools, yeah. right? You you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. do have critical race studies. You don't have, like, critical class studies, right? We don't even, like, legitimize that as a as a valid identity. Yeah, well, that'd just be Marxism class, to be honest. Sure. <laughs> we can't teach yeah. that. We can't teach that in these <laughs> right. universities, you know? Right, exactly. And so, I mean... I feel like there's just so much uh, entrenched, like even from academia, from all sides of this issue that is like kind of preventing the class identity from getting activated both here, you know, and in places like Israel. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think, um, uh, you know, that has been helped by some people, this sort of like like new wave of like rising socialists um, who see the centrality of class. Um, and I, I agree with them. I think class is really central to how oppression um, is, is structured, including you know what we call intersectionality. I think can kind of miss the point by saying, like, okay, we we have all these different forms of oppression. There's class oppression. There's race oppression. There's gender oppression. And so you experience kind of like a layered uh, set of these different oppressions. I think that gives us a useful tool for understanding the different experiences we all feel under capitalism, to feel these different uh, divides in gender and race, which are very real. But fundamentally, those divides would not exist without the class question. It's that class cements racial oppression, class cements gender oppression, and it always has. And so when we uh, talk about the centrality of class, some people who may not – you know, who, who may think class is central, but may not necessarily know exactly how, will then say, okay, because class is central, things like race and gender are not as important. Well, it's not that they're not as important. It's just that if we want to fight for them, if uh, fighting against racism is like our like fundamental drive in our lives, or fighting against sexism is our fundamental drive, or fighting against xenophobia, I think the, the message that we need to articulate is that the only way you can do that is by posing the class question by, um, you know, realizing that these divides were created specifically to, uh, to, to reinforce the class structure. And the only way you can, uh, to liberate, uh, women from patriarchy, the only way you can liberate, um, black people in America or Palestinians in Palestine is by, uh, you know, uniting the working class against the capitalist class and breaking the class system altogether. Because fundamentally, that's what has created and then sustained these other uh, ways we experience impression. Um, and so now you said we saw some of those things kind of like fade out after the Bernie campaign. I would slightly disagree with you um, because um, if you looked at what happened uh, in, 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 in 2020, uh, just a year ago now, the, 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 the protest after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, that was remarkable in American history. I mean, the largest protests we've ever seen, but then more significant than that, these were protests against systemic racism, against police brutality, uh, and, and very radical ones, open to posing serious questions. And not only was it, you know, uh, attended by uh, masses of black people, also masses of white people. White people were willing to, to fight systemic racism because they realized maybe they didn't know how to articulate it. Maybe they didn't know exactly what demands to put forward or how they could win them. But they realized that there's something in systemic racism against black people that's bad for them too. And that's absolutely true. Systemic racism is, is bad for everyone. It's not good for white people. White supremacy does not benefit white people. It, it divides the working class. If you separate white and black people, White and black working class people, it, 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 it blocks them from uniting to take on their capitalist enemies. And that's always been the case. The white working class for the last couple of decades was not willing to unite with the black working class. They were too racist. They were indoctrinated by the capitalist system to be racist. Now you see people waking up in this crisis of capitalism, you know, millennials, um, 
uh, Gen Z. And it's not just because they're young. It's because younger people are living worse off than older people. Um, they are more working class disproportionately than their parents and their grandparents. They're seeing that all this is connected. And again, even if they're not articulating it, they can feel it. And while I don't see the prospects of that happening anytime soon in Israel, and actually it's getting worse in Israel, the young generation um, is more right-wing and more racist than their parents. It's very scary. It's ex- it's, it's very, very frightening. Um, fundamentally, the message that needs to be articulated to them, like what is sort of happening now in the U.S., white people realizing the system is bad for them, that message needs to be articulated in, is- in Israel in a very uh, 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 succinct way. And um, but honestly, that 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 can't happen without the Palestinian people resisting and fighting for their dignity. But I think you know I think that's the fundamental character. I think all this would be made a lot easier if Israel was not given this blank check to just commit all these crimes. If they're not just given all these weapons, all this technology, um, and all this diplomatic support by the United States. As soon as the United States withdraws and 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 kind of uh, backs itself away from Israel. I think you could see, see a very quick reshaping of Israeli society in the same way you saw in South Africa. I mean, Israel is an apartheid state. I think you can say arguably um, it's worse than apartheid. Uh, apartheid can even be like an antiquated descriptor for what Israel is. It, it, it's a um, nothing like Gaza existed under apartheid. Uh, under apartheid, there was more freedom of movement for, for um, black South Africans than there are for uh, Palestinians in the West Bank. It's an extremely brutal system there. But um, – uh, you know, if you saw what happened in South Africa, um, just a couple of years before apartheid ended, no white people wanted to end apartheid. They loved apartheid. Um, right. But why wouldn't you? I mean, it's great for you. Right. And actually <laughs> in, like- in South Africa, in South Africa, it, it, it was actually, you know, quote unquote, good for white people because actually most of the white people were in the capitalist class. I mean, they were a very, very small minority um, uh, within South Africa and, and they did own most of the land. They, they still do actually. They own most of the wealth and they still do because South Africa did not end capitalism. And because of that, they still have this, you know, a, a newer sort of, um, less overt system of apartheid like that we have in the United States, um, where whites are disproportionately better off than, um, Black people here, you kind of have that now in South Africa. But before, the, the whites were really the capitalist class. In Israel, that's not really the case. There is a very large uh, Israeli Jewish working class. Um, the problem is, is just that their uh, employers, their their capitalist rulers are very adept um, uh, at, at wielding the founding ideology of the state, which is fundamentally racist, um, to distract uh, Israeli working class uh, from realizing that uh, yeah, no, the capitalists are your enemies, that Zionism is bad for you guys, that uh, uh, the Palestinians are their natural allies if they were actually trying to fight for their own working class interests. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, we had a, a like so much to talk about that I feel like I'm going to have to split this into two <laughs> different episodes. So um, for this episode, if you could just tell people, um, you know, what are some resources that they can find if they want to like learn more about the Israel-Palestine conflict? And, you know, if you can also just give them the socials for your group, um, that would be awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, to learn about the Israel-Palestine conflict, there are a number of books. Um, I really uh, look to the scholar Norman Finkelstein. Uh, he's a very, very uh, thorough um, observer of the conflict. Um, he just looks at the facts and then draws his conclusion pretty much just from the facts. He doesn't like to bring ideology into it too much. He doesn't actually talk about capitalism very much. Um, uh, so if you just want to learn the facts... Um, I, I highly recommend people look at books he's written, uh, specifically ones like Method and Madness, which is about Israel's wars on Gaza. He has another book called uh, Gaza, an Inquest into its Martyrdom. Um, and uh, I believe uh, uh, Mark Lamont Hill put out a book uh, recently called Except for Palestine, which talks about how oftentimes uh, progressive um, uh, politics exclude the issue of Palestine in the United States. And I think that's an important book to understand um, if we are progressives wanting to, wanting to include Palestine into that debate. Um, and I believe Angela Davis has written a great uh, book about the link between the struggle for black freedom and the struggle against capitalism with the Palestinian struggle called uh, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, if I'm not mistaken. Those are some good resources to check out. 
Um, as far as my organizations, um, I recommend if people interested in uh, the Philadelphia Free Palestine Coalition, follow us on Instagram at Free Palestine Philly. Um, on Facebook, we're called the Philadelphia Free Palestine Coalition. Um, just that page. Um, and check out the website socialsalternative.org and uh, subscribe to our newspaper, buy our newspaper, come to our tables on the streets, uh, 40th and Market. Um, uh, there's a number of locations we uh, uh, protest at. And like Socialist Alternative on Facebook, like Philadelphia Social Alternative on Facebook, see what events we have coming up, what uh, political education we're doing, um, what discussions we're having. Uh, yeah, check us out there. Awesome. And if you want to find our show, um, we're at I'm the Villain Pod. That's our Facebook, that's our Instagram, and that's our Gmail. Um, otherwise, bye. <laughs>